This is the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 10th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers coming this week from Phoenix, and we'll be talking about what's going to be going on or what's gone on this week in the area of federal taxes, which has been somewhat limited. Again, we're not seeing a whole lot come out of the IRS or the courts. Well, we did get Michael Jackson's estate. I'm not sure how much relevance that has for most of you, unless you're regularly valuing uh, items of a pop superstar uh, in your practice. If you do that, I assume that's a specialty you're going to be dealing with on your own. So I'm not going to go through the Michael Jackson estate. Sorry if you thought we're going to go down that path today. But I'm going to try to go down a few other things that I think may have a little broader implications, let's say, for most of our day-to-day clients. Not saying that maybe you don't have a a budding Michael Jackson in your practice, you know, as one of your clients. And if you do, go for it. But for now, we'll take a look at some other issues. First, we're going to take a look at an IRS discussion of what's the proper way to look at deductible expenses or non-deductible expenses for aircraft used by a sole proprietor. We also have an IRS memorandum that was prepared because it appears during an exam, a taxpayer who got hit with constructive dividends from his controlled C corporation attempted to argue that those dividends should not be part of investment income. We'll discuss the IRS's views on that point in their memorandum. And finally, we're going to discuss something that got a bit of coverage this week, which is that the IRS won this week, again, the right to issue a John Doe summons to a cryptocurrency exchange, in this case, the Kraken exchange. And we'll talk about what's going on there, what they're doing, why it's kind of weird that the IRS always goes in overly broad, then narrows down to what seems to be now the standard being what they allowed in Coinbase. But we'll talk a little bit about this and also what it means for the IRS and this whole bit with cryptocurrency. So let's start out here, though, with Chief Counsel Advice 2021-17012 that was issued on April 30th. And this document is taking a look at the use of an aircraft by a sole proprietor. And what we're going to look at here is, Yaris is saying, when you're looking at this, do you judge the deduction and disallowance of expenses based on looking at Regulation 1.162-2B, which is the primary purpose test for travel, uh, for travel expenses incurred by an individual, Or do we look at the special allocation rules found for aircraft in 1.274-10E? And that, you know, if you've had aircraft inside of a corporate setting, uh, you probably have used this before where you have employees on the plane. We talk about allocating, you know, putting back into their W-2s a certain portion of the trip if they weren't on the trip primarily for a business purpose. And what we're going to look at today is, well, which way do we judge it if we have a sole proprietor who is flying his or her plane? How do we determine how much of that can be deducted by the sole proprietor versus how much would be disallowed? We're going to look at those two particular items. Now, the first thing we need to discuss is what are these two tests? And the primary purpose test is found at Regulation 1.162-2B. And generally what it deals with is if you travel. And so this is a simple case where I don't necessarily have my own plane. I'm just going to pay Southwest Airlines uh, to fly me to do a session 
Let's say I am doing a session in Austin, Texas. So I'm going to be flying from Phoenix to Austin, and then I'm going to fly from Austin back to Phoenix. And let's say that I do that while South by Southwest is going on, or maybe I go, or maybe I'm a Grand Prix uh, fan, so I'm going to go there for the United States Grand Prix at the course of the Americas, and that'll just happen to occur at the time I convince somebody in Austin to have me go ahead and do a session. And so we're going to talk about what exactly would it take for the travel there to be considered deductible or not. So we're going to have a joint trip where I go to San Antonio, I go to Austin, get in the right Texas city, and I'm going to go there and I'm going to spend time, a certain amount of time at South by Southwest or the United States Grand Prix, and I'm going to spend some time doing sessions there in the city. So how do we determine whether or not that is deductible travel or that is personal travel? Well, the bottom line under Regulation 1.162-2B1 is we have to take a look if is a trip primarily personal or primarily business-related. If the trip is primarily personal, then you only get to claim a deduction for expenses that directly relate to the trade or business, effectively using a but-for test. That these expenses, these are expenses on my trip to go to Austin that would not have been occurred except for the fact that I am presenting the CPE session. Now, obviously, in order to go see the go to South by Southwest or go see the U.S. Grand Prix, I'm going to have to go ahead and buy a ticket and fly there. So I'll be doing that regardless. So that would not meet the but for test. It's a test that's there. So that doesn't relate to the business. And I don't make that partially related. It's considered unrelated because the primary purpose of that Southwest ticket was to get me there for one of those events for my personal enjoyment, not really to get me there for the session. I just happened to throw one in. And you see clients do this from time to time. They're going to be going somewhere for, you know, obviously personal purposes. They're traveling to a big family reunion. They're going to be with the family for two weeks, and they schedule one day, theoretically, uh, maybe taking their own continuing education course somewhere or doing something of that sort. And yeah, that doesn't work. To determine whether a trip is primarily related to your trade or business or not, it is facts and circumstances in general, but Regulation 1.62-2B2 actually tells us right off that the amount of time we spend relatively in personal pursuits versus in the business pursuits will give us an idea of which is the most significant. So let's go ahead and let's say that I'm there. And it's really tough for me to figure out. I mean, I suppose I could figure out on the technology side in some way, shape, or form, we could maybe figure out business reasons to be there. I find it really tough for me to figure out a business reason to be at the U.S. Grand Prix. So we're going to use that. Let's assume I was there. I gave one day of sessions for, let's say, a firm in Austin. And then I you know, attended all three days of the U.S. Grand Prix. So I went to all three days of the Grand Prix, the first day practice, second day qualifying, third day race. So I'm there all day looking at all the other races. So I'm there all that time. The overwhelming amount of time I'm spending on personal pursuits is is going to make this trip into a personal trip absent some really, really compelling evidence that that one day you know, for that firm giving that continuing education course was the primary purpose for the trip. 
And I'm going to say that I have real trouble coming up with that theoretical reason that would suddenly take that trip and make it into a totally deductible business trip. The test is going to be primary purpose. So, you know, we look at that. And as we should be aware, in the primary purpose test, the burden is on the taxpayer. The taxpayer first has to show, if you're going to argue the primary purpose was for business, to try to get all of those travel expenses into the mix. You know, my trip to uh, my trip there. Now, obviously, even in that scenario, the tickets to the Grand Prix are not going to be deductible. So let's kind of skip that. But the other things, let's say, you know, the travel there will be fine you know, and other things of that sort. Let's say that, in fact, I was doing three weeks of CPE continuously in Austin. That would be kind of a little different, but let's assume we somehow worked that out. So I was doing three straight weeks of that there, and I spent then the three days at the U.S. Grand Prix. Uh, then you probably could say that, that the hotel rooms and other issues in that time frame probably would work. So I could probably get that deduction because for the three weeks as a whole, the Grand Prix would be de minimis. But in this case, obviously, the Grand Prix makes up 75% of my time. You know, spending three days there, one day lecturing, that's kind of a 75% to, you know, to one day makes it difficult, makes it difficult to justify why that would be a business trip. And the other catch is, even if we then go that route and say, I would still have to justify what expenses specifically related to the continuing education session. You know, what expenses were related to that? Now, maybe I printed up materials. You know, I went to a you know copy shop or something. That's not normally the way we do this. Normally, the customer handles materials. But let's say I did. Well, those would be expenses that are part of the trip that, actually do clearly relate to the business. Maybe I had to pay for lunch or something during that day, business lunch with the group. For some reason, we're buying lunch for the group. That would also, therefore, be part of the cost of the travel. That would become part of the deductible amount. Now, the other issue, they say, is, look, there's a secondary rule here called the Entertainment Rule for Aircraft under Regulation 1.274-10. Now, generally, under 274A, no deductions allowed for expenses related to entertainment facility. However, there are some exceptions, and one of which found at 274E2, you know, essentially tells me that if, in fact, you know, my the, the person that is receiving the entertainment, if that's an employee. So this like goes on an aircraft. So we have our corporate aircraft, let's say, not that I have one, but if we had one, and let's say one of our employees, because we're flying the corporate aircraft to Austin, and one of my employees has family in Austin, we could allow that person to fly, but we have to put certain amounts into their W-2. Generally, there are certain rules that come in there. And that, that's under special allocation rules found at 1.274. Uh, 10 is have certain there at E. We have certain special allocation rules there. Depending upon how many people are there for business purposes versus how many people are on the plane just kind of tagging along for personal purposes. And we have those special rules. Now, on top of that, we also have a special rule that says for a specified individual, the amount of deduction allowed cannot be more than the amount of expenses, or just the amount of expenses allowed, cannot be more than the amount the person picks up as income. There is a simplified computation of what I'm going to put in that employee's W-2. But if that employee is a specified individual and actually does a cross-reference to what would be Security and Exchange Commission rules for who are the considered to be parties that could be insiders, 
And then it does something similar if you are not an SEC client, an SEC business, you know, who would be in a similar position. So we can kind of say control individuals, people of that sort. Uh, then we have to have that limitation. And that was put in a few years ago because it was quickly determined that depending upon how expensive your aircraft is, that actual, you know, value of the trip that's going to W-2 could be considerably less than that person's portion of the costs of the plane in question. So therefore, we're going to limit the deduction, not allowing you to, you know, take, put a small amount in the W-2 for the majority shareholder and then end up writing off a much larger sum we got rid of that so that's a secondary method under this theory that's a specified person so if we do that then basically you know we get those expenses for operating the aircraft even if it's for entertainment purposes as long as we have the people and they could be an employee or they could be another person who's providing services to the business as long as they pick that up as service income. So that's a backdoor way in this. Now the question is, how do we deal that with a self-employed individual? Now look, if we have a sole proprietor and that sole proprietor has employees, then yes, the special rules under 1.274-10E would apply to the employees and the business related that way. But what about the proprietor, him and her, him or herself? Can they look down those rules and add back to, let's say, pick up as income the amount that would be the value that the employee would pick up and that, that does that allow us a deduction? And you might think, well, if that's there too, could that person be somebody who is not a specified individual? And therefore, could we get that break? Because again, these aren't employees, right? So we could get an argument that specified individuals all looks at employees, and it, you know, maybe we can argue they're not, was the theory some were using. Well, the IRS is coming down and saying, yeah, guys, yeah, you're, it's not going to work. Let's put it this way. The IRS view, view is that the primary purpose test is what governs the sole proprietor. So the sole proprietor's portion of the cost of the trip is governed entirely by the uh, business purpose. You know, is it primarily for business or primarily not? So if the reason for the proprietor being on the plane is primarily for business, that portion is deductible. If it is not primarily for business, the cost of that plane flight will not be deductible to the sole proprietor. Now, the IRS said, look, you can't use the other rule. And they kind of indirectly understand that uh, that argument is going to come down, is going to try to come down and say that they're not a specified individual so that we could take a small ad and have a big deduction. So I'm sure that's the argument that got this started. But they're saying, don't worry about it. That's irrelevant because, A, the sole proprietor cannot be an employee. We all remember that basic business law, right? You cannot employ yourself. So because the sole proprietor cannot be an employee, the employee rules don't apply. But he is obviously somebody other than an employee, and he is performing services for the sole proprietorship. So that looks like something that might work a little better. You know, hey, that, that sounds a little more promising as our option. But the IRS said that doesn't work either, because the problem is the sole proprietor already owns the plane. It's kind of like looking at your house. You don't really have income equal to the rental value of your house 
that you own. You're not going to pick that up on your 1040 as rental income because you're allowed to live in your own house. You can't create income from your own house using your own car or, in this case, using your own plane. The proprietor owns the plane. That is the proprietor's plane, so the proprietor can't generate income. They're saying, so this doesn't apply. It's all based on the principal purpose test. However, if there are other people on the plane who are using it for entertainment. And remember, traveling to Austin for South by Southwest or the U.S. Grand Prix is going to be considered to be an entertainment trip. So if I've got those other employees coming, you know, they're traveling there because they're going to one of those events, um, then that has to be allocated out separately on a reasonable basis. So the IRS is saying you don't get, you know, you don't get basically carte blanche. You can't bring along your entire family or your friends or your neighbors and get a full deduction for the trip by saying, well, it was primarily for business for me. They all just came along. No, you're, you're going to have to say, that you're going to have to allocate out a portion of that. That will be non-deductible entertainment or personal use and will be disallowed. And I, like I said, I strongly suspect that there was somebody trying to use that argument to try to put that small amount back on the tax return, basically be a small disallowance on the Schedule C of the expenses, but then the much bigger expense amount. And effectively, they're saying, nah, that's not going to work. We're not going there. Finally, this week, let's talk about the IRS revisiting cryptocurrency. Or no, hey, th this is the one. I should say this actually is the next last one. Let's go through this one. This is Chief Counsel Advice 2021-18009. I was ahead of myself. This is May 7th. And this is a case of an IRS exam of a closely held C-Corp. I know we don't have many of those. But in theory, this could still work for an S-Corp. So we'll talk about it a little bit from that perspective as well. So there were certain personal expenses that were paid for by the corporation. The IRS, of course, disallows those on exam and says that's a constructive dividend. Now, apparently we're not disputing that under this memo right now. But what was happening was this taxpayer had income high enough and apparently uh, had enough earned income that he was paying the net investment income tax. The weird part about the NII is it is a tax on excess AGI, excess adjusted gross income, if you have primarily investment income. It's a tax on investment income if you have at least above the $250,000, slightly above that level due to the offset for expenses, of non-investment income, then it will be looking at NII. And this particular taxpayer apparently was looking at NII. I wouldn't doubt it was a successful C-Corp. Why it was a C-Corp is probably open to question right now, but there are various reasons why companies might be there. And they were probably bailing out as much earnings as they could. Uh, so I'm going to expect that this guy is probably has a significant amount of income. They might have agreed that it was okay. Maybe it was a service business, so it's a little tough for the IRS to try to argue if you're a service business with no employees. It's really tough for them to argue that you didn't create the earnings. But what they did say was we got these disallowed expenses. That's going into dividend. The taxpayer says, okay, I'll accept that, but those dividends are just subject to you know qualified dividend rules. And they're not NII. I don't pay the 3.8. The agent was saying, yes, you do. So the taxpayer is arguing, look, I'm actively involved in the business. Therefore, there is no way that this is kind of passive investment income. 
I'm the person there working in it, generating it. I am directly materially involved. I think the trader business exception should apply here because it's a trader business and I am not passive in regard to it. But the IRS said no. And the IRS view kind of comes down to this. In the case of a C-Corp and to a certain extent an S-Corporation, corporation is distinct from the individual. Now, in an S-Corp, this isn't as big a problem in most cases because distributions are generally not taxable as long as you have sufficient basis and the corporation has enough AAA, right? And the S-Corporation is a pass-through, so we're allowed to look inside and we're looking at the trader business income, which we're materially participating in. So that will take that out of the net investment income tax. And because it's out of there, because we materially participate in it, uh, that also means it builds basis and the distributions are non-taxable. So they also don't cause us NII problems. But if the S corporation is paying a dividend out of earnings and profits because it ran out of AAA, or you're having to bail that out because you're going to lose your S status due to excess passive income, then I think we have a similar problem here. The problem is you holding shares is what investors do. You're telling me the corporation is real, kind of your position. Therefore, you have these shares. These shares receive dividends. That's an investment style activity. That's the reason, you know, and that comes down to a primary argument goes way back why the S corporation flow through income wasn't SE, nor were the payments out of it, because it's basically investment. It's an investment activity. Well, because of that, that's separate and distinct from the W-2 you're receiving from the corporation. That's where you have your hat on as the employee of your corporation. And as employees, you get those wages. Those wages are not subject to NII, but any dividends the corporation pays to you that are considered dividends under the tax law, which would be anything coming out of earnings and profits, whether it's a C or an S corp, those are going to be considered investment income unless, and the IRS said, well, you can't look through to see corporations business. And the only way you get dividends in the ordinary course of a trader business is generally to be a trader or a dealer in securities. And that's not what this taxpayer was. And then secondly, even if he was that, that's not the nature of how he's holding this stock. The stock's being held as an investment. So the IRS, are, so, so this ruling says, sorry, go ahead, agent, and go after him for the net investment income tax on those dividends. Add that to NII. Is the IRS right on this one? I, I think they probably are in this view. You know, you have to realize that the form we chose is a corporate form. Definitely, in some cases, that corporate form and treating this as investment income helps us. But there are times it's going to hurt you. If your business hadn't been structured as that, it's fine. But then you would have had whatever negative impacts that you were avoiding because you continue to treat this as a C-corp. Those negative impacts might not be tax-related. You know, if you're planning to take a company public, it's going to be easier, especially with outside investors uh, who are looking or getting, trying to get all your seed money from. They understand taking public C-Corps, and it just works easier. The whole system works better if you've been a C-Corp for your history. So there may be those reasons, but you have to live with the consequences of those reasons. So that's part of the deal here, and that does mean the dividends... The dividends from your closely held corporation, 
that are treated as dividends paid out of ENP are identical to the dividends you might receive from General Motors paid out of ENP. Same difference, same issue, same treatment. Now, finally, let's go ahead and talk about the cryptocurrency exchanges I was jumping into too early before. This was the case from the Northern District of California's U.S. District Court, case number 3-21-CV-02201. This order came down on May the 5th, 2021. The IRS has definitely gone after exchanges before by issuing what are known as John Doe summonses. John Doe summonses means that the IRS does not know the people they're looking for directly. But they have a group of people that they believe they have a right to have certain information from because they have, in this case, a reasonable expectation that some not insignificant portion of that group is, you know, evading tax law by, you know, making use. That's going to be their argument in front of these cryptocurrency exchanges. Now, of course, the exchanges fulfill an interesting role in cryptocurrency. Because the catch is, as it stands right now, you can't really buy everything with Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin, because of its volatility, is not the world's greatest, you know, medium of exchange. You know, in the five minutes we end up talking about, you know, the weather before I try to buy the hamburger at a fast food joint, you know, the price of Bitcoin could have gone all over the place. So now it could cost way more or way less in terms of Bitcoin. So it doesn't work that way. Secondly, because I need to convert to something that will be generally recognized as a medium of exchange by all the parties I need to pay or get something from, um, I probably need to convert back over to cash. Now, while there are other ways of doing it, obviously the exchanges are the simplest approach to get things converted to cash. So the IRS has assumed that there's going to be a pretty good footprint in there of people who might be trying to stay off the radar with cryptocurrency, but eventually they discover that, you know, if they want to buy something, they need to get some cash. So they're going back to the exchanges to get cash to use to buy that stuff thereafter. You know, because I, let's see, you know, I want to go buy a brand new whatever, you know, large screen television, got one of those huge ones, let's say. I want to pay, you know, five grand for this, you know, top of the line one from my ill-gotten gains. Well, I need to get five grand. So I've got to go get the five grand. My local Best Buy is not taking Bitcoin. So I go get my five grand by, you know, selling off my, selling off my units. And of course, I'm paying less than 10. So we're going to assume that, you know, Best Buy won't report me, but I have this transaction coming through that takes my cryptocurrency and moves it over into cash coming through the exchange. So I have this sale, which, as we know, A, should trigger a capital gain or loss, but B, may be evidence of other income I've had that I never managed to report because I was paid in Bitcoin or whatever it was, whatever that ill-gotten gain might have been, I was paid in the cryptocurrency. So the IRS says, hey, we can find out about this. Now, normally the IRS walks in, they've done this every time, asking for every record. Um, you know, this case, they're looking at the Kraken Exchange, uh, trying to get information from them. And the IRS comes in super broad, as for every record of every customer. And the court, just like the court did in Coinbase, said, 
that seems overly broad. You need to give me some, you know, because there are going to be people who are on the exchange that just got on the exchange, you know, to play around with a little bit of cryptocurrency, you know, bought a couple hundred bucks just in case it would go up dramatically. You know, so they're, they're sitting there. They're not really somebody who I think realistically is the nature of your investigation. So, you know, g give me something a little cleaner about what type of customer would be the one that fits within your view of this massive tax fraud. People underreporting significant amounts of funds. And so then the IRS comes back and says, okay, we'll go ahead and do it. But we're going to limit this and just ask them for individuals who have more than $20,000 worth of transactions between 2016 and 2020. The court approved this. That green light was granted by the court. The court said, okay, that seems to us to be restricted enough for at least us as a court to be comfortable with this order. Now, what this obviously means is that the IRS is getting a bit more serious, and it probably means, I think this is what's probably the most important thing to remember is, that they saw positive returns off of their previous work with Coinbase, which was actually, I just noticed that. That case went back four years ago. So we're going to assume that they've had good responses by going after the exchanges and getting these John Doe summonses. Now, obviously, when you do it, you know, everybody scrambles to find a new place to go, right, that the IRS supposedly can't touch. And then somehow you discover, yes, they can. You know, so that, that keeps happening. So obviously, you know, people now know Coinbase could be asked to give stuff over. So you move somewhere else. Their theory is, you know, if, if you're in illegal activities, that's kind of a bad thing to hear about. So you move on elsewhere. Well, the IRS keeps going down. This has become that way. The other practical problem is, like I said, this whole bit that some people have that they can run this, they'll just be off the radar. That's great. But if you need, if you ever get in a situation where you can't use your virtual currency directly, um, you know, you're going to end up leaving a footprint. And the IRS has realized, so has the Department of Justice, that these exchanges are the most likely place that footprint will arise. And that's where they're going to get this. So your clients need to understand that question on the front page of the return. The IRS is serious about that. And if they discover, I don't care your client's not been doing illegal activities in general. They, they've just been trading in Bitcoin or doing whatever else they've been doing with Bitcoin. Uh, they have to understand that they better be reporting those gains and losses because the last thing I want to do is show up on this list because my other big concern when you show up on this list, you know, you show up there and they investigate you, you haven't been reporting, is they're going to start asking a whole lot more questions about where the money came from. And even if it's all legit, you're going to have a long time explaining to them, you know, and showing them and proving them that fact there's not more hidden income. So, yeah. I tell clients, be sure to report these transactions. If you're using exchanges, I don't care what your theory is about why they will never find out about it. I'm going to tell you that those theories have not been holding up too well over the past few years. So whatever your new theory is, it may still fall apart when we go next. So we'll just keep our eye on that. So this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments here for the week of the 10th of May. We have one week until this year's filing date. That, of course, we discovered not long ago, but it's May 17th, and then we'll be back on the traditional October 15th year-end for extensions. 
So keep your eye on that. We'll see what happens this week. I will warn you because it is the filing deadline. There's a reasonable chance that next week's broadcast could be delayed a bit. Uh, just be aware of that. That's the kind of thing that can happen when I'm into the last week of filing season, doing my standard work of assuring that anything that needed to be extended got extended, doing all those double checks. So just fair warning about a delay possible next week. Uh, I do keep my eye on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington. So if you have some questions, you can post things there. I'll try to keep my eye out. And if there's something I think I can help with, I will try to give an answer there. Otherwise, just check back in here next week. Uh, we will be talking about whatever comes up. And like I say, maybe a little delayed next week, but still looking at whatever's come up here. We're keeping our eye on any tax bill proposal. Obviously, it's not rocketing through uh, the Congress at this point. So I think we have a little time to take that into account. It's not something I need to know before the end of tax season. Good news. So we'll, we'll get that part done. And I'll see you all back here next week for more current federal tax developments.